Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Mr. Beacon Podcast is sponsored by Williot, scaling IoT with battery-free Bluetooth. So welcome to the Mr. Beacon Podcast. This week we are delving into digital to physical convergence, the internet of apparel, uh, a, a sustainability twist, uh, and a very interesting project, which is uh, I think going to potentially yield some great opportunities in the world of apparel, uh, some great opportunities to help save the, the, the planet and, and certainly something that's very thought provoking. And uh, for this discussion, we've got Dr. Kevin Dooley, who's, uh, who's joining us uh, in, uh, in uh, part of his role within as the chief scientist for the sustainability consortium. So, uh, Kevin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's, uh, it's a real pleasure. Um, can you uh, maybe introduce uh, the Sustainability Consortium first, and then we'll, after that we'll uh, delve into a bit, a bit about your background, and then this, uh, this project uh, called Wherever, which uh, is really fascinating. Excellent. So um, the Sustainability Consortium, we just achieved our 10th anniversary. And it's a joint effort between Arizona State University and University of Arkansas. And we were uh, started a, a decade ago in order to see what we could do to make consumer products more sustainable. And so the general notion was that up to that point, um, companies and brands had a portion of their product portfolio that they might designate as green under some type of environmental or social attribute. And that's a great first step, um, but our goal was really to look at all product categories and all products sold in those categories and determine a way to make them more sustainable. And so we set out with uh, about 100 corporate and NGO stakeholders, uh, a number of other academic institutions, and first of all, did the materiality assessment on 100 different product categories like bananas or computers or uh, cotton, uh, cotton textiles. And from those social and environmental hotspots based on the, the science that we knew, um, then developed key performance indicators that then suppliers use to report their progress uh, to their, their retail uh, consumers. 
And um, there have even been some uh, breakouts of then sharing that information with the consumers themselves. And so uh, we're most known for that development and stewardship of, this, of the Walmart Sustainability Index. Uh, but our members have also been interested in now can we do something about those hotspots. And so a lot of our uh, members, especially in the kind of durable goods sectors, uh, have expressed interest in various circular economy projects. And uh, so that's kind of, kind of how Project Wherever um, got initiated because we saw there was a lot of potential interest amongst our members and other corporate and NGO and technology providers. Just to round out the, the TSC, the Sustainability Consortium, uh, you've got some very significant members. You said there was uh, over 100 even at the founding. Can you uh, name drop a few of the, the, the players in that? Um, well, so from a retail uh, perspective, um, I mentioned that you know Walmart has been kind of our lead user, um, but uh, more recently in the last couple of years, we've had uh, implementations uh, by Target, uh, Amazon, uh, Sprouts, um, Kroger. Um, significant, very significant. Yes. <laughs> so you, you have a broad net, and, and, and this is not just sort of a uh, um, uh, post in a, a check for $1,000. This is a fairly significant commitment these companies make to uh, participate. And uh, just before we get into wherever, any kind of notable uh, achievements that you can point to uh, in terms of these hotspots that you talked about? identifying and uh, has there been any progress over the last uh, decade? So it's, it's been about five years that it's been operant in the field okay. and so um, we're covering about a trillion dollars worth of product sales so that's about one-fifteenth of the global retail trade. Mm -hmm. um, so we have a lot of potential economic impact there's about 2,500 suppliers that have participated, mm -hmm. um, and uh, we have seen that, uh, first of all, there's been an improvement in the underlying scores. So most of the questions, most of the hotspots for any product manufacturer exists in a supply chain. So most of the KPIs address supply chain transparency and performance, and really, you can't really get concerned too much about performance until you have that first step of even having the transparency of knowing who your suppliers are. Are they actually doing anything about GHGs or water or uh, labor rights? And so uh, we've seen those supply chain transparency scores um, increase from an average of about 30% and now five years later to about 45%. And we've also seen that those suppliers that have participated in multiple years generally have higher scores. So it looks like it takes about two to three years for any large corporation or medium-sized corporation to put in the measurement systems at the both their own factories and within their supply chain to begin to collect um, sustainability-related data. And then, you know, in terms of changes to product and process and whatnot and packaging. Um, uh, about 85% of suppliers who report say that they've done something in the past year to basically improve their KPI score. And so that's kind of our theory of change. And so we see that suppliers are actually doing stuff directly linked to the, the KPIs. And again, um, it takes about two to three years, let's say, to make a packaging change. 
right? So if you think about going through the design process, you've still got to include all the advertising for marketing purposes on there. If it's a new formulation, you might have to change suppliers, change that equipment. Um, so we're getting a sense of what the, the feasible pace of sustainable change is in, in the corporate world. Yeah, very good. Um, and then lastly, before we get into wherever, uh, tell us a bit about uh, your background. What do you do when you're not the chief scientist? Uh, well, so um, uh, I'm a professor of supply chain management at Arizona State University. And uh, kind of, uh, I was trained as an industrial engineer at University of Illinois, uh, taught for 10 years at University of Minnesota, and then have been here at ASU for 22 years. I uh, have moved from my industrial engineering background uh, more to business and supply chain, mm -hmm. um, and a lot of stuff around new product development. Um, and a lot of my, if my research isn't focused on um, sustainability, it's about supplier innovation, basically how you, manufacturers can tap into their supply base for sources of innovation. Very cool. Um, so wherever, where, where did it come from? What are you trying to do? So I have to credit uh, a gentleman named John Atchison, who is the CEO of an app called Stuffster. Uh, Stuffster is a uh, startup that has been, um, uh, I think, has gotten some initial VC funding. They had a very successful pilot launch uh, with the UK clother uh, John Lewis. And they operate both a back-end and front-end system that will essentially allow people, first of all, to have a, a digital library of the things that they own, and then on top of that get um, an immediate assessment of its resale value, and then um, essentially have someone pick it up that night if they want and put money in their store account. And uh, I know that the pilot with John Lewis, I, I, I think I know the numbers uh, uh, reliably, that um, about like a quarter of what John Lewis had sold over, I can't exactly remember the time frame, maybe the last two or three years, was returned in this particular pilot project. And so it shows that there's a pent-up demand that people have for a, a channel that's convenient and they could give them some uh, monetary remuneration. Uh, but I think most of all that convenience for product take back of clothing. So the people buy the clothing, they wear it, and then they give it back to John Lewis? Uh, they would, so um, uh, Stuffster would uh, run the take back system and then Stuffster would um, uh, resell it um, in other distribution channels. Oh. Um, and that information obviously would be used analytically by John Lewis, and this is another way of kind of, um, I think generally retailers are interested in ways that they can remain, uh, they can communicate on an ongoing basis with consumers, and so this is an example of that. And and John and his uh, and his company are a member of the CE100 group in the Ellen MacArthur Foundation as is Arizona State University. And so that's how we got connected. And he came to us asking the question, what do we know about how long products are used and how often they're used? And in our work in the sustainability consortium, we found a big knowledge gap there. I mean, if you think about it, we can define the life cycle of a consumer product and we can identify a thousand plus distinct steps you know, from the farm or the forest or the metal extraction all the way to end of life and recycling, all the intricacies um, that we can model. And there's this thing in the middle 
called the consumer and the use space. And it's a big black box. And we have no idea really what goes on there. And, and you know, for particular consumer behaviors around particular attributes, yes, there's been lots of studies. So there's lots of studies of like, you know, cold water washing by consumers. Um, or, you know, do consumers turn the lights off in their house? Or do they, you know, unplug their utilities to, warrant, you know, uh, not have passive uh, electricity use? Um, but for the most part, it's a black box. So that seemed intriguing just as a scientist, like, well, we really don't know very much. As we went and saw the reaction to this question in the CE100 meeting in Phoenix, there were all these retailers and brands and universities and service providers, technology providers, who were in the room just super psyched about the question. And so um, we were intrigued anyway, but then when we saw that kind of interest amongst um, people across various different sectors and value chain positions were like, this is something hot. And so uh, TSC offered to kind of facilitate a planning process through the calendar year 2018. Um, we fell upon clothing as the category that most of the um, participants were interested in, received a, uh, a grant from a foundation uh, so that we can begin to essentially do pilot demonstrations in uh, 2019. So our interest is that we see that this is going to explode with or without us. Um, there's just all sorts of marketers and positive drivers and initial investment in using digital technology to track clothing and to track products more generally. And um, we think that there are certain things that would be advantage to doing a pre-competitive space, especially around standards to measure utilization, analytics, and hopefully the development of perhaps a benchmarking platform um, that brands and retailers and consumers can use to that incentivizes companies who want to design clothing that has superior longevity, but also superior utilization over its lifetime. Okay, so you're trying to extend, one of the opportunities at least is to extend the life of products and to make them used more. And, uh, you know, we often, um, at Williot, when we kind of talk about uh, uh, building on the shoulders of what Amazon have done, Amazon know you so well, uh, they, know, uh, they know everything about what you browse and then the conversion to, to, to buying and so forth. But what they don't know is... Do I actually use these things that I that I yeah. bought? This is the the black hole that uh, the black box that you uh, that you referenced. So it seems like there's a real opportunity here to have people, if not own the product longer, then uh, maybe um, this product has another life after after the first uh, ownership. Um, do you, I mean, how practical is it for us to expect that companies whose motive is presumably to sell as much stuff as possible to um, really, well, first of all, support and then uh, actually do anything about um, making these products last longer if it means they're going to sell less stuff? Yeah. So um, a couple different answers to that. Um, Maybe I could start and, and kind of summarize that from, from my initial assessment of, of the activity in this domain, um, that there are two main drivers. 
Um, and whenever you look at kind of adoption of technology, sometimes it's not the technology itself that's being adopted, but rather there's, there's larger trends that are going on that it gets swept up into. And so um, the first is, is that we have been tracking inventory in the supply chain with RFID tags and other technologies for a long time. That's a clear business proposition. Companies know the value of that and invest in it and are continuing to increase their investment in it. And so this is an extension of that inventory tracking. And I think that those interested in that application are particularly interested in what happens and where it goes after its first life. So they want to make sure that the user knows, for example, proper recycling or where they can take it to get donated and those types of things. Um, and then um, they want to then make sure that that inventory comes back into a closed loop. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of money and, and business cases already for inventory tracking. This is an extension of it. Um, but there, you know, there may or may not be applications in use. It's more about making sure that you know where the thing goes at the end of first life. Then the other driver I see are uh, essentially marketing um, opportunities. So there's, um, with most products and clothing included, there's not an, a natural opportunity to continue to communicate to the consumer post-sale. And both the brands and the retailers have interest in this particular application. In some cases, it may be, you may consider it push marketing, right? And so um, it's basically marketing, maybe it's about similar products, maybe it's some kind of um, uh, benefit that you get, um, maybe a customized song list, for example, that you can download because you're wearing a particular item. Um, but I think it also goes to consumer uh, instruction and even safety. So, for example, I know this is outside of clothing, but I know a technology firm that's developing technology whereby it would monitor the number of pills in a pharmaceutical bottle and we're able to tell, essentially, with the trigger being the cap opening, um, if the proper dosage was taken, if it had been forgotten and so on, mm -hmm. and then could communicate back to the consumer. So yes. um, I think, you know, it's on one hand, it's the inventory tracking. On the other hand, it's the marketing and consumer education. Um, so I think that both of those applications then uh, are going to drive the interest in tracking consumers' usage of products. And I want to come back to these points, but let's just get into a bit of the how. Uh, we kind of uh, talked about uh, a little bit about what and why. Um, how uh, do you? How are you tracking this? Uh, how are you instrumenting the black box uh, today with the project? So uh, in the consortium, uh, you know, we don't have the capabilities to develop technology ourselves. It's not our expertise. And um, we have a tradition of, of not um, essentially picking winners. So we don't say that paper is better than plastic or, you know, whatnot, mm -hmm. uh, because, of course, we know as scientists that that answer is it depends. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, what is the best technology? It depends. Um, our interest is in, first of all, in a very short term, to be a champion for the opportunity because we think the opportunity needs to get exposed um, if there's going to be industry-wide adoption. So part of our interest in the upcoming year is just to demonstrate the use case so that we can begin to bring publicity and awareness um, from firms in the industry. Um, 
But the second is to, again, uh, figure out how we should measure these things, and we think that that should be done in a pre-competitive context. And so our experience in, in multi-stakeholder facilitation developing measurement systems is, you know, our interest and my obsession of, it kind of led me to this particular uh, 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 target of objectives. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Well, you've got a really great picture, uh, which I'm very tempted to reuse, uh, um, on your website that shows this this uh, this product life cycle. It would be good to just kind of talk through that uh, cycle i don't know if you have you have it in your your head but so the kind of the concept here um for maybe the experiment or maybe on an ongoing basis is is what you have let's let's say it's rfid um so you have a rfid tag that is presumably integrated at some point into the item of apparel um, right uh, generally these things get removed today they're on a cardboard tag but uh, uh, but this um, because for, for various reasons <laughs> privacy reasons and uh, and so forth but is the plan to put these tags on um, uh, the apparel that certain subjects that participate in the wherever study have on all of their clothing what's what's the idea right so maybe let me step back a little bit and kind of talk about the conceptual model yeah um, that is maybe in the, the three-year time frame. Um, so we conceive of three different dimensions that describe the state of a garment. Um, the first that we normally think about is its physical state. Um, and so we have design attributes, including information about like how the product was made. You know, was it was it uh, sustain was the material sustainably sourced? Is there recycled content in it? Um, as well as um, skew level identification information about um, the particular family of product, uh, the make, the pattern, the color, size, etc. So there's all that metadata that exists about the state of the garment at production. And then ideally over time you'd also like to have some way of measuring the physical integrity of the garment over time. And that will, you know, that eventually will require some type of um, image recognition uh, capability, but it's not infeasible given how often people take pictures of themselves. Um, ah, then yeah. you have the you have the emotional state 
uh, which is a relationship between the consumer and the garment. And the reality is in, in, in clothing, we don't know whether physical integrity or emotional integrity is the main driver of people stopping to use their clothes. We have a sense in media and technology that it's that emotional um, relationship that it's no longer stylish. There's a new model out. It's not that the the cell phone is not operable anymore, right? Um, but we don't know the answer to that. The fundamental that fundamental question in clothing. So in the long run, if we had a way to measure through the way that consumers, for example, um, uh, posted on social media about particular garments, the sentiment that they used in talking about the garment in those posts, whatever measures that might be available. We have a second measure now of emotional integrity, which is also dynamic. The third is the physical um, location of the item, which infers its use state, um, but there's some complexities there. So we have to think about a garment as a piece of inventory that moves through different positions in the household. Um, there's a, a storage area where it's dormant. There may be a long-term storage area where you actually have to move it out of, like my winter boots here in Phoenix, right, to actually be used. Um, there's uh, in-use. That in-use could be in the house. It could be outside of the house. Um, and then there's uh, what we often don't think of. There's the queuing system for maintenance. Um, we can think about bringing laundry out you know, to a laundromat, but there's just in our house, we've got the laundry room, there's a queue waiting to get washed, there's a queue waiting to get dried, there's even a queue waiting to get stored away. And until an inventory makes it, until clothing makes its way through that system, it's not available for reuse. So this is one of the, the initial insights that we gained um, from thinking about the system in this model is that the amount of inventory, clothing inventory that people have is directly related to the essentially the queue size and the throughput time of their laundering process. So in college I owned so thirty <laughs> I owned thirty T shirts and it's because I only went to the laundry at once a month. So I had to own thirty T shirts. Um, so that's we don't often think about that as uh, a reason why we own so many clothes, but that's a practical implication of thinking about clothing as as inventory. So um, there are a couple different ways, you know, if we look at um, the dominant technologies that are likely to be used, which would be RFID. It could be RFID tags, but there also now are RFID threads. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's um, tags that convey digital information in different ways, so NFC tags, uh, QR codes. Mm -hmm. And then I think um, we have uh, Bluetooth devices mm -hmm. um, that then also might embed other types of sensors. So we've thought, for example, that motion sensors or um, temperature sensors might also have application to this use case. And um, they all they require different levels of consumer engagement, um, which means convenience. So I think that. Um, you know, right now we have RFID tags in the inventory um, supply chain. Um, they're used in the retail shop, as you mentioned. <clears throat> so from that sense, it makes it makes sense to extend RFID into the rest of the value chain. The It has the positive attribute that it doesn't require um, the consumer to engage the system, right? If the garment passes with an RFID tag, 
um, within proximity of the reader, then you can record that event. The constraint is that readers are expensive. And so they make sense on a truck, they make sense in a retail shop, they make sense in a distribution center. Today, they don't make sense um, at high scale in a home. And so there, you know, we look towards um, uh, solutions that require consumer engagement. In the case of a QR code <coughs> or an NFC tag, um, your phone can read them. So you've got that convenience, but the consumer has to remember to engage. In the case of NFC, they've got to bring their phone basically to contact with the tag. Um, right, the, the the distance is about the thickness of your phone. Mm -hmm. um, and then with the QR codes, you have more distance um, uh, because you're using your camera, but you also have light um, constraints. So the QR codes don't work great in, in low light. Um, and then the Bluetooth, uh, as you know, and we've talked about, um, which which may be connected to a, a simple positional indicator or be linked to some other sensor. Um, the 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 constraint there has been the power source. Um, so if you can come up with a solution that has um, a way to deal with that power source solution, um, and you can develop devices that are um, still um, environmentally benign. Mm -hmm. Um, because they will be thrown into uh, 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 landfill, they will be attempted to be recycled, you know, then um, that has the interesting attributes that um, it doesn't require the consumer uh, to actively engage, but at the same time it has a much longer uh, potential uh, range of, of and level of precision around positional accuracy that you don't have with the others. So I've been describing this to people, rightly or wrongly, as having the potential of being the Nielsen for the clothing industry. You know, the sure. uh, Nielsen studies the, for people back in the world, <laughs> days when people used to watch TV, you'd, uh, they were like the, the Bible where everyone, and they took a sample. They didn't uh, watch everyone that watched the television. They had a sample audience and they instrumented the set-top box and then all of the television executives used to race to see the numbers. So is that a reasonable metaphor? Are you, and in particular, are you seeing, how, how big is the sample? Is this going to be kind of a, a study, a moment in time, you think, where there'll be uh, a few dozen people participating in this? Or do you see uh, a bigger sample size? Or do you see this just being part of the way clothing is made and you uh, have uh, permanent uh, feedback from a whole range of different uh, washing machines and uh, uh, social media apps that are constantly uh, uh, providing this information. Where, where, where do you see it and how close is it to the, this Nielsen idea? Uh, a couple different answers there. I think the Nielsen metaphor is perfect, right on target. And the fact is that uh, both a particular brand and the industry can learn a lot um, with far less than 100% sample. There's there's tens of millions of opportunities to engage consumers, even if you only have 10% of consumers engaged in conversations about clothing. So regardless of where your sustainability stance is, regardless of, of how strongly you feel the need that our, my main objective, all else um, doesn't matter, is to sell more clothes, brands want to talk to consumers. 
because it is, in fact, a way to some our close. So this is a means to do that. So I think that for that reason, this will have a, a, a solid business argument, um, even for, for companies that you state um, whose, whose mission is to make new clothes and to get them sold. Mm -hmm. The other opportunity there is um, the contagion effect. So if you think about when a new product is released to market, you want to be able to predict its, uh, its demand. And so going into the release of a new SKU into the market, you've got your sales forecast from previous sales. Um, and once you release it into the market, you've got your sales data on a daily basis or even real-time basis. You've got social media buzz that you can track. But you don't know if the clothing's being used. And the thing about clothing is that if you don't wear it, then there's no potential for contagion between one consumer and another. There's no possibility of peer communication. Um, unless you wear it and take a picture of it or you wear it outside the house, no one is going to know that you own that product. You're not signaling that you own the product. But if you do, then there's that potential for contagion. And clothing, perhaps more than any other attribute, has that potential for once there's visual recognition in a real social context, then all of a sudden, hmm, I think I'd like to get that, right? And so if you had data about utilization, even in just the first four weeks of a release, it would seem that that could be really useful business information from a market forecast standpoint. And then also, if you think about the applications that could then engage both the, the company to consumer, but also consumer to consumer, um, then you have the potential for buzz, for micro-influencing, you know, and those other business opportunities. So in terms of the, the size, um, we're, we're one effort amongst maybe a half dozen that I know of that are at kind of all the same stage of doing kind of laboratory pilot experiments. There are uh, technology providers like Eon um, that just yesterday announced the Fashion Connect um, effort, which is a very important uh, initiative to standardize the metadata um, that will be collected on, on tags. Um, and they have brands, uh, clients that they're working with. There are other technology providers, uh, Blue Byte, um, that also have brands that they're working with. Um, I've been aware uh, of Cisco's efforts here, IDEO's efforts here. And um, I think there are demonstrations in the level of dozens to maybe 100. Um, here on the university, I hope that we can hit 100 or 200 uh, participants here in the fall. Then I think next year we're looking at the thousands. And I think by that time, um, ideally you'd have enough of a critical mass of clothing manufacturers that you could begin to get some legitimacy towards both the business opportunity and the, the kind of pre-competitive issues that make sense to collaborate on. Yeah, that's a fascinating. You just touched on, uh, on something that if you have uh, if you have competitors, and this is I'm sure nothing new for the sustainability consortium. You have a bunch of competitors who are all uh, collaborating. Have you thought a little bit about uh, the data issues in terms of uh, a competitive uh, uh, access to to this and b the privacy? 
issues. I guess if you've got 100 people in the study, then they're like uh, saying, I'm doing this for the greater good. I don't care if you know how often I, uh, I wash my underwear. But, um, but is there, um, what, what are your thoughts on uh, data ownership and privacy? I think it's critical. It's one of the reasons why we thought there was a, a role for us because we don't want, we're afraid that industry, if they play alone here, will not develop a shared uh, privacy um, stance mm-hmm. um, and set of standards. Our belief is that we need to ensure that that happens. I'm not 100% sure that we need to make it happen. So part of part of this digital data may be embedded in a broader context. So for example, there's an initiative called the Hub of All Things, in which people have an individual digital account of basically information that can be related to them, and then they're allowed to um, essentially enable external entities access to that information. So it may be that at a, at a different technical level of the system, um, privacy is, is the, that's where privacy is addressed. And certainly at the technical, the very technical level, you know, if you're talking the, the wires and connectors and stuff and, and waves, um, again, I think that's best handled, that security is best handled at that technical layer. Um, I do think, uh, uh, A, um, you're never going to develop a, a, a used um, corporate or industry measurement system if it is used for shaming, right? So it has to be used to identify leaders and to allow leaders a way to legitimately make claims about their leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that w- that's kind of the principle. I don't know what the right answer is, but that's kind of the principle of how I would see kind of brand anonymity, um, even retailer anonymity, uh, user anonymity, that um, you have to be very careful about uh, it being misused, um, or you, you don't really want companies to be able to say, we're better than company X, you know, because of this data. That's not, I could see a system like that, but again, I think that we have um, experience with the sustainability index to know kind of what uh, what can be made public, what cannot be, what level of detail, et cetera, um, to make all the, the stakeholders happy. Very cool. Well. I am just so excited by what you're doing. I think it's really awesome. And I love the fact that it is, you know, you can see, you know, there's some great ideas which will make the planet better. Yeah, extending the life of clothing, second use of clothing. But you think, no, one, this is never going to, this is, it's against people's interests. But you can see a real uh, value for, for the participants to know um, okay, you know, I sold this thing. How often are they wearing it? I mean, that's such an important question. Uh, and then, uh, you know, many other ways that uh, businesses can benefit. So this is exciting because it really does seem like it's the concept is sustainable as well as it uh, supporting uh, environmental uh, sustainability. Uh, any major things that we could uh, touch on before we, we, we sign off? It seems like you've got some good momentum here. Uh, well, again, thank you so much for, for your kind words. Um, you know, I think that uh, in general, our our life is being turned into information. Uh, one of the, um, uh, the interesting things I learned about this week is that there's a number of design firms 
um, that are being bought up by essentially consulting companies or other business entities who are in the information business. So I think there's a, a growing trend towards looking at products as information. This also links to you know our move to servitize, servitize, right? So instead of the, we owning the product in a physical way, we purchase the service. And in that context, um, it's super important, right, for the for the brand manufacturer or the service provider to know how the product is being used. So we see that with like the HP, you know, ink, where in fact the HP ink cartridge is communicating right with the system to know when it needs to be refilled. So I think the general trend here is that um, you know IoT will enable information and then there'll be all sorts of business value opportunities to make use of that information. Yeah, absolutely agree. Well, Kevin, it's been very exciting, real uh, so glad that we got a chance to talk and I'm sure we'll uh, be uh, we'll be talking again. Thanks for joining the show. Thank you. Good luck to you. I don't know if you got to look at the briefing notes, but we have this tradition on the show where we ask our guests what music they would take on a trip to Mars. And uh, um, I was wondering if you'd had a chance to, to think about that. Is, uh, is music an important part of your life? or uh, Very important, yes. Yeah. yeah, so that was an intriguing question. It would have been very difficult on the spot, but yes, I have some answers. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, let's get into it then. Uh, uh, what, what's, what are your top three? Uh, so first I would choose, there's so many different uh, rock albums that are so classic to choose, it's hard to do so. So I'm going to be selfish and pick um, my own college rock band uh, that we called the New Originals, uh, which was a name that we stole from uh, the Spinal Tap movie. <laughs> and um, we did uh, a 30-minute open jam uh, called Remove the Water. Um, and we had a bunch of electronic devices that we didn't know how to use and just flip the rec record switch on and went. And so it's one of those things where you look back and you, you say, I could never recreate this, but I'm glad that at one moment in my life, you know, something emerged from our meanderings that was listenable, at least listenable amongst three or four people. Oh, that's really <laughs> and, cool. And uh, then, I, then I would choose uh, Max Richter's Sleep. Okay. So... Um, first of all, you know, sleep was composed to be listened to as you slept through the night. So I'm getting eight hours of music from one album. Um, and I think it's the most, uh, you know, for a long trip to Mars, you need some ambient music. So I, I choose Max Richter. Um, and then uh, I would practically as a third uh, choice, uh, choose some form of, of white noise um, uh, for, uh, for sleeping um, and, uh, you know, background noise as, uh, as I work. So maybe a recording of, uh, railroad track sign, you know, sounds. Uh huh. Uh, amazing. <laughs> so no Brian Eno, maybe you could sneak a bit of Brian Eno, his ambient recordings in there. Well, you know, with, with, uh, modern technology, we can take, we can just stream it, you know, and I don't mind if it takes two hours to get there. So okay. I assume we'll have access to streaming services. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, some very original uh, uh, nominations there. Very, uh, very interesting. <laughs> Thanks very much for those. Hold up. 
Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.